Hello and welcome back to another episode of Companies on Cannabis. I'm your host, Chris. This is a podcast where each episode, my co-host Sean and I discuss a business that is in the news and provide a case study on a challenge it's currently facing, while one or both of us responsibly enjoy cannabis. Hockey season is back, and this week we're discussing the NHL. Gary Bettman, the commissioner of the NHL, has said that playing a season will cost the league billions, so why are they playing? We provide thoughts on the financial, social, and political motivators for why they'd play the season, and figure out how you logistically run the league this year. As you listen, please keep in mind this call is recorded on Zoom. Thanks for listening. This is the NHL on Cannabis. All right, well, bro, Rogan, now that we've got this podcast up and running, I say we get right to it. Uh, It is the week to talk about the NHL. Yeah, I mean, I know you're a huge, or you were a huge NHL fan. Uh, I don't know if you follow these days, but uh, I heard the 2021 season has officially started and underway, so I think we can talk about it. You know what? I wasn't going to get into my own hockey roller coaster journey, but because you brought it up, I'm going to, because I think I might actually talk about it a little bit down the road. might be relevant. Um, so I, you're right. Growing up, I was the biggest hockey fan and, you know, I was a kid in the 2005 lockout season and I didn't care. Was it was a 2005. I feel like it was 2005 and I didn't care. I was, I was coming back that next season. And then there was that, I want to say 2011 lockout. It was the lockout when I was in like high school. Yeah. And, and that one, that one pissed me off because I was old enough to understand that it was over trivial business matters. And it, and I was missing out on the, the beautiful sport of hockey as a result. And, uh, and we also saw the sport change a lot and it just became different than what I had as a kid. And as a result of, of changes and lockouts, I actually kind of distanced from the sport and it became less relevant in my life. And I no longer really pay attention to it uh, other than for the political and of business interests of it oddly enough <laughs> interesting yeah i mean they've had a few lockouts in the past 20 25 years right like in our lifetime anyway i'm gonna quickly google it because it's gonna bother me um nhl lockout 2012 so i think that was probably the 2011 2012 season if i were to guess and then i want to say there was the the 2005 was the other one 2004 2005 yeah okay okay <laughs> yeah you got pretty good memory there yeah, so I guess I was a hockey fan, uh, but uh, but yeah, so so because of of kind of my my evolving, maturing kind of personality, I I just grew to to enjoy other things, and I kind of saw the 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 follies of of hockey as an institution, um, as NHL as an organization, um, as Gary Bettman as a leader, which more to come on that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I just, I don't really particularly love the sport anymore. The, the business and the politics of it has poisoned the sport, but lucky for me, I'm still fascinated by business and politics. Awesome. And I guess, yeah, that's kind of what we're getting into today with the NHL, given the COVID-19 pandemic. I know last year they had to stop the season once the pandemic hit, um, essentially delaying the Stanley Cup. Uh, playoffs that were just about to start and um, yeah they didn't really know where they were going to proceed and when they kind of get back on the ice but I think they eventually finished that season last year in the fall or something and then the question was do you run another season now or or what do you do right 
Yeah, you, you pretty much understand that correctly. That's what happened. They did the whole shortened season thing. They did a really cool dynamic playoff style tournament, um, which I think was super cool. You know, as a fringe fan, it was a really well done kind of bubble playoff style tournament. I, I really liked it. Um, okay, how is that set up? Uh, honestly, I, I don't want to get into the full intricacies of it because it, it's got a lot of nuances, but basically hockey traditionally has a 16 16 team playoff and uh this one particular year because of the shortened pandemic season they rallied and did a later on after a break they rallied and did a bubble style um playoff with 24 teams instead of the usual 16 and that way even despite the shortened season more teams got to more teams that were in the running got to show their competitive edge um and I think that was fascinating given the circumstances um, and they, and Edmonton hosted it and, and it actually was a very successful kind of bubble city story, I think. Okay. Um, nice. Yeah. I, I think it was pretty taxing on the players because obviously it was a pretty prolonged period of time for them to be away from their families and stuff and to be in Edmonton in a, a lockdown hotel situation, essentially. Um, but I think it was really great for the sport and for the fan base. Um yeah, I think it was. I think it was a very interesting, positive playoff circumstance. And then the next question is, what is the next step? How do you proceed after kind of a successful playoff save? It's like, okay, well, how do we plan a regular season, right? And with everything being as negative as it has been with the pandemic these days, um, it wasn't really appropriate for them to move forward. Like some municipalities like san jose outright prohibit it um obviously you'll still have places like you know texas um where you know this dallas stars are totally allowed to have fans in the building no big deal (laughs) and and uh and then you've got you know san jose that won't even allow the game to be played without fans um right okay yeah i know here in vancouver i think they were talking about could they do could they have the bubble here but Eventually, that was nixed, and um, yeah, they had to go to a different city, I believe. Yeah, so so that's the whole issue, right? Is that you can't do a one city playoff bubble for an entire year, and uh, and you can't really do a normal season with planning and all of that, given that all these different jurisdictions all have their own um, different crises going on. Like, there's different levels of of pandemic ultimately. Yeah. And, uh, and it's going to be a regional issue and, and there's going to be regional differences and responses. And, uh, and that's kind of left them in this weird kind of, what do we do? And, and I, I think it's kind of interesting that Gary Bettman kind of has recently led the way with a very bold statement that, you know, we are not in the millions of losses. We are now in the billions and we are, we are going to lose money by playing a season folks. And I think, I think that that's one of those things where I don't necessarily buy that. Um, I think ultimately they're not going to lose money. I think television rights are worth more than ever when people are staying at home. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay. So I guess there's like two factors to the question of putting on the second season, right? You have the logistical factors of how do you actually run it as well as the financial incentives of like, how do we actually make money and make it worthwhile for ourselves to 
kind of run this season, right? Or how do we run it most efficiently, right? I think there's also like kind of that kind of third perspective too, which is also the political reality. And you could probably group it in with the logistical reality, but there's also the political reality with your fans, with your consumers, where even if you can get the jurisdictions to allow, allow you to hold the games, if it, if, if you do any, if you step on anything that you shouldn't, it could still blow up in your face. Like for example, if NHL players, as a result of this, Hey, we want to get the game going uh, mentality. If NHL players end up jumping the line and getting vaccinated before the general population, that could blow up in the NHL's face and be a really negative thing for the sport. So there, there's a lot of liabilities in, in proceeding on the political side that I think a typical logistics you know, business mind wouldn't maybe fully understand like pandemics aren't every day of the week, you know? Yeah. Okay. So I guess, yeah, we can go back and talk about the financial aspect of it since you brought that up first. And yeah, so you said Gary Bettman, is he commissioner of the NHL head leader of the NHL? How would, how does he describe it? <laughs> he is the uh, head cowboy. No, I, I, he's the commissioner. <laughs> okay. Uh, he, he's, a, he's a rowdy one, but the owners love him. He's made them a ton of money. Right. right. So and, I, I would say that during his tenure, like the, the, the value of the league's gone up at least three, th- you know, three times probably. Um, so yeah, from a business perspective, the sport has grown during his time, whether that's all his, to his credit, I don't know, but the sport has definitely grown in value during his time. Yeah. And so he said that, and you don't necessarily believe this, but he said that the NHL could lose billions this year um, if they run a season. Um, And so where would those losses be coming from? I mean, I know for teams, right, you have ticket sales, suite sales, parking and concessions, like all this revenue that happens at the team level. And I think he might have even said 50% of revenue comes from that type of um, income stream. But yeah, where else would the losses be and where do you think they're actually making gains? I saw an article by Forbes, I want to say, that said it was even closer to 70% uh, of the revenue came from butts and seats, not 50%. Okay. So that that was also kind of interesting to me. Um, and it's like, huh, well, why would the NHL underplay the value? Like, why would they lowball it as 50% if it's closer to 70%? And the political part of me was like, wasn't wouldn't 70%, if that's the reality... Wouldn't it? it uh, wouldn't that get you more sympathy and, and make people want to to get the game going and make people want to collaborate with you and work work with you to make that happen? And then the reality hit me, and the reality was that no, people are already collaborating with you to to get the sport going. People already want to make this happen. The reality is that the fourth, the world's fourth biggest credit agency, is looking at the NHL and saying, "Hmm, maybe we downgrade that." And that, that is the reality. And it's like, huh, that could be interesting to, to consider. Because, um, and, and when, when you talk about the financials and you say, well, where are the losses? I, I'm, not, I'm not saying there are not losses. There's absolutely losses. Um, you know, there's losses in, in the decline in franchise value. The average franchise lost about 2% of value, um, which is pretty substantial given that inflation for most things is like, what, 1.5 to 3% a year. And these things decline in value by 2%. Um, it's the first decline since 2001. So I think that's kind of noteworthy. Um, I, I think also like when we talk about like 
okay, these teams are like losing money. I think it's also important to think about which teams are losing money and which teams are going to be just fine. Um, five teams in the NHL account for almost 25% of the league's revenue. So I think that right there is pretty telling of the fact that a few teams are going to be very okay. And a lot of teams are going to go through blatant turbulence. Um, right. So teams uh, like Toronto, Montreal, um, is it Boston? I want to say is one of them. And maybe yeah, Pittsburgh, they're kind of like the big hockey teams. Chicago, not not Pittsburgh, oddly enough. Actually, interestingly, I was reading that Pittsburgh's going to be probably implementing internal salary caps in the next few years, which is really interesting because since the league introduced revenue sharing, most teams would use up a good chunk, you know, a good chunk of their full salary cap. Because even if you don't use the full cap, being able to make a trade if you really, really wanted to is a nice little kind of flex tool. Like you'll want to have a bit of cap buffer. Um, and most teams would kind of push pretty close to the limit. And, and, and especially if you're trying to win the cup, you'd use that full cap. And to have teams that are known as competitive teams like the Penguins look at internal salary caps, like we just haven't seen that in such a long time. And it could lead to an era, and this is why revenue sharing was introduced, it could lead to an era where um, uh, we just see a little bit more contrast in league talent and just a little bit more of a polarization in, in, in the team's qualities that they're putting on the ice, I guess. Okay. Um, Interesting. Yeah, but I, I kind of digress there a little bit. Back to the financials. I think it's noteworthy to talk about um, when like the revenue dries up in a pandemic situation the, the teams that are already struggling markets that, that need the money the most. So your Florida, your Tampa Bay, your Arizona, those markets that the have not markets, um, they, they actually lose their revenue sharing revenue. So not only are they losing the limited revenue that they already make from butts and seats, um, they are getting less money given to them from other teams as a result as well, which is pretty problematic. Okay. So um, yeah, they're going to struggle a bit. Um, I heard, I think, Bettman was saying that they're pretty much giving out loans to some of these teams to help them operate for the season. And um, obviously, these will have to be paid back eventually, but yeah, help them weather the storm, I guess. Yeah. So in in lieu of like revenue sharing opportunities, I'm sure they've they've secured like loan opportunities internally amongst their league. and, And that's great. But uh, at the end of the day, like that still puts a lot of pressure on teams to react to their new financial reality when play does start again. And that's going to, what does that mean? That's going to mean internal salary caps. That's, you know what I mean? Like that's going to mean not building a new stadium when you want to. Uh, So I I just think that there's a lot of subtle negative things in here that we have to kind of be mindful of. Um, cause like nine teams posted double digit losses in 2018, 2019, which is four more than the previous year. So like that's one third of the league essentially is posting double digit losses in this pandemic scenario. So it, like the quote unquote have not teams, that's a, that's a third of the teams in that scenario. Yeah. Uh, um, and like to go on, it's not like it's like a third of the teams at the bottom of the league. Like the Stanley Cup champion Tampa Bay did an $11 million negative EBITDA. Um, so they are part of that, that, that you know, nine-team bunch. And, and they won the Stanley Cup, right? 
Um, okay. So I, I, I think probably a, a pretty safe bet for a lot of these teams to, to help them weather the storms is they're going to sell minority stakes in their franchises. Um, and that lets them continue their business operations, continue their overall strategy because they still are the majority shareholders. But it's a it's a way to raise capital to to not have to like sell the franchise or or close or what have you. Um, yeah. Right. So. Okay. Yeah, I know I've seen teams, or at least Boston, they've tried to bring in the fans a bit more if they can't come to the games. They're going to do like online 50-50, have some fan initiatives and offer the like one-of-a-kind items, these collectibles, um, to try to at least engage fans. And I don't know if that will bring in that much of a revenue stream, but uh, especially compared to selling a minority stake. But I guess that's one thing. Yeah, like I mean, I think at, at, at that point, those operational um, efforts are more important for the staff at these facilities than the overall hockey picture, because those operations I don't think are going to make or break a franchise's existence, like running a 50 50, but it might help save some of the staff's jobs at the Boston arena, you know, like an equipment manager might keep his job or an events planner might keep her, keep her job or like what have you because of these little events. So I think it's great that these organizations are doing them. And a lot of these organizations, like I know I sent you an article earlier that kind of highlighted how I think 29 out of 30 NHL teams reported that their staff took voluntary pay cuts. Yeah. Um, yeah the, wonder... Ottawa Sen- the Ottawa Senators took a 50% pay cut. They were, I don't think they were happy about it, but they did. So I think we maybe <laughs> take off our hat to them just for a second. For sure. Way to go, Senators uh, coaching coaching staff. Yeah, I think a, a lot of the, the cuts are more between like 20 to 25%. And I saw a lot of them were capped as well, where or there's a cutoff point where if you were making below, say, 150 grand, then you were included in that pay cut. And 150 grand, I guess it's still pretty large salary, but I guess uh, I don't know how many how much staff is below that cutoff line, but... I guess it's nice to see that it's kind of the sacrifice being made by the more uh, the haves kind of to support everyone and make sure that they can all weather the storm together. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know. I think uh, since there is kind of some negative undertones of, of this whole thing on this whole, there's some negative talk of the NHL in this conversation. We'll just say that. So I think it's, it's nice to kind of pause and, and say, Hey, here's a positive thing is that 20 now to 30 organizations you know, took that team first attitude off the ice, which is really cool to see. Um, and in the situation of Buffalo, I'm, I'm going to name them Buffalo Sabres. Your coaching staff declined the voluntary pay cut. Uh, just saying. <laughs> uh, in that in that situation, I, it seems like there's internal politics within their organization because I think they had just let go of like 22 staff. So I think they're sorting some stuff out there. Right. Um, yeah, that could be something where. Yeah, that's that's all not... I'll say about Buffalo. I think, <laughs> but yeah, overall the trend was awesome. For right. Sure. Yeah, I guess the internal politics that'll affect any company, and if you've already had to let staff go, then, then yeah, you might know that. Um, yeah, why do we also have to take a pay cut? Like we're already trying to cut where we can, and um, yeah, that'll be always tough to, tough to get people on board, and obviously they weren't able to uh, for Buffalo specifically. 
one thing that I find interesting in, in this push to get people on board um, to, to make the sacrifices that everyone needs to make so that everyone can weather the storm and get back to playing is that Batman keeps mentioning Seattle. And I don't see how Seattle, a team that does not yet exist, I don't see how Seattle is involved in this. Seattle doesn't need to consider the same severe, you know, operational cuts that teams that are operating have to, to have to consider. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Okay. How, how, how is Seattle getting brought into the mix? Because he's saying like Batman's referenced Seattle repeatedly saying how there's additional pressure to get back to playing because we've got, we've got Seattle joining the league and oh, like it would be cheaper to just not play, but we want to get back to the league because Seattle's joined. We want to get back to play because Seattle's joining the league. And for me, it's like, these seems, these comments seem like irrelevant and not related. Like I'm not buying it boys. So, so when is, when Seattle supposed to join the league, was it 2021, 22 or a bit later? I want to say yes. Okay. Not this season, but the next. Okay. So yeah, Seattle's joining next season. Um, yeah, if you're going to lose money by running a season, I, I don't necessarily see why you'd want, why you'd want yeah, to that's run what, it if you're, yeah. That's what I'm saying. You're, you're saying, hey, everyone, we've got a horrible losing situation here. And because we love hockey, we're going to keep moving forward, but we're all going to, we're all going to lose money here. Just to remind you folks. Okay. Have that guilt on your shoulders because we're all losing money here, folks. But by the way, we're going to bring one more franchise into this losing scenario. How about that, folks? <laughs> and, and for me, it's just like, uh, like I, I get it. The business had already been done and signed and the ink dried, and then the pandemic happened. But I really, I really think that there's still something there to, to think about. <laughs> I do. Yeah. Could it be anything with the fan base? I'm not sure how big hockey is in Seattle already with fans who might be excited, but um, could it be anything about making sure that when Seattle joins, they have like one of the best starts possible. Um, and yeah, is that worth it to lose money this season to get that for this one team? I don't know. I, You know what? I, I think you're right. I think there's definitely considerations there for sure. So, so good point. But at the end of the day, I'm going to circle back to my initial comments about my experience as a hockey fan. Okay. Now why I fell out of love with hockey was nothing to do with the sport it was to do with the politics and the rules and the enforcement of the rules. Okay. The sport changed after different rule changes during different lockouts. And while they were all changing the rules and changing the profit streams, I was left without hockey and I was bitter about it because as I got older and during those later lockouts, I began to understand that I was missing out on hockey for a stupid reason. Okay. Now with this pandemic situation, the NHL is in a position where they can blame something that everybody has to accept pandemic. It's not a stupid battle over money, which is like essentially greed, which fans like me may not particularly like, right? Definitely. It's a pan, it's a pandemic. And I, I look back on how many people would be excited to go back to hockey when it's safe post pandemic. And I think if hockey plays its cards, right. They can, they can make a lot of money in the post-pandemic boom when people are very excited to do these social events again. They just need to play their cards right. And I think if they rush it and they have a failed attempt of a season and safety is, is seen as secondary, 
I think they could lose fans the same way that you lose some fans and become irrelevant during a lockout. So I guess what I'm saying is if you're willing to, to risk becoming irrelevant and missing a season over profit stream disagreements and revenue sharing disagreements, then you should be willing to miss a season over health concerns and pandemic considerations. And obviously that's my view, but okay. it's my podcast with you. <laughs> so we get to share our views. Yeah, no, I like that. Um, and I think you're definitely right. They have this excuse that they could use. And if they played it right, they could kind of get everyone's sympathy. I think that's a good analysis. Um, I might just bring up one last counterpoint, which would be the example of like other sports. I think the NFL is playing the NBA, I think ran their playoffs. I don't know if they're currently playing, but so if you have these other major sport franchises that are on, again, if we're talking about the fans, would they be bitter that, well, if NBA, if NFL, if, uh, I don't know if baseball even played in the summer, but if these, uh, if these sports can play, how come you guys can't figure out a way to do this for us? Um, and that would be my only like, yeah, my last argument for what the fans might react to uh, not playing this year. No, I, I think that's a great point, and there's something to it. Um, I do think with hockey being a more Canadian fan base and a more Canadian sport, I do think you're going to get a little bit of a more progressive COVID stance and pandemic stance, and you'll get a little bit more kind of consideration to the health parameters of, of returning to play. So I think the fan base in hockey is going to want to see health and safety considerations and the players being a, a lot more European and Canadian players are going to want to see those health and safety considerations. And that's going to make returning to play a little bit more politically tricky and logistically tricky than a sport like, Oh, I don't know, baseball. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that that would, that would be my one kind of counter counter consideration. Um, and then, uh, I think also another thing I just want to quickly highlight is that it's a, whenever we're talking hockey and we're talking Batman arguments and, and people arguing for and against a Batman position, once you bring another sport into it, it's dangerous because Batman always boasts how much he's grown hockey and how much money he's made owners during his era. But let's look at like basketball or like football and let's look at how much money those teams generate and those leagues generate and how much those leagues have grown during those same time spans. And it makes you wonder, maybe Batman's not that great. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I don't necessarily know. Um, but yeah, if I guess you compare. I know basketball's definitely grown a lot. Um, but yeah. That's what I I'm think... saying. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> and, yeah. So so, and the other thing too is, I think it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyways. The last thing that separates hockey from other sports is that it has a very uniquely air shared system. And during a pandemic, that's absolutely fucked. And I think it goes without saying, but I'm just going to say it anyways. When you go to a baseball stadium, a lot of the stadiums like are open and they're, they're just absolutely enormous. Um, whereas when you go to a hockey arena, like they literally need to ice the ice like they need to keep it cold. They need like, there, there's an entire consideration about air filtration, airflow, all of that. And you're in an enclosed space at the, that's the end of it. Yeah. Like that, like you, you can talk about all the ins and outs of, of their great systems, but it's an enclosed arena. Yeah. And like, yeah, baseball, football, outdoor stadiums, uh, basketball, hockey, indoor, 
Um, and that's definitely going to be a huge factor. And I think we can kind of move on then to maybe the logistics of how you run this potentially shortened or yeah, shortened season um, with a COVID pandemic going on. Um, and yeah, you talked about player safety, let's say. Uh, I think you also shared with me earlier that a number of people were tested positive while like during training camp this year. Yeah, I don't remember the exact number. Um, I could pull up the article if you if you really fancied me to, but uh, let's say twenty something. I, I think it was like twenty seven or something. Yeah, and that was just during the training camp period. Um, so, I mean, there's definitely a risk, and the fact that these stories are making it into the news and that people are reading it shows that people care. So, I think that just reinforces that consideration that hey, like there are political considerations tied into those logistic considerations and that we do like the, 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 the importance of it being done properly and in a healthy and safety way is just as logistically important as anything. And uh, I think that really forces the NHL's hand to look at bubble scenarios, or it has to look at a very fragile league schedule where they can just cancel games at any point in time and cancel players at any point in time. And it seems like that's the way things are going to go, but, uh, but, but, but neither is good. I, I think that's evident, right? Yeah. Like right now it seems like they have a bit of both where they have these bubbles for divisions. And I think these are new divisions that have been set up, right? Where you have like the Canadian teams all play together. You have, I think West coast of the U S you have East coast and then you have like the South, right. And they're all these, you have these four divisions, they have their sections that they play in. Um, they get to stay isolated from each other and kind of figure it out that way. Right. Yeah. Like honestly, it's a logistical nightmare, but, but you're right. Those are the considerations. And basically at that point, the next step is okay. This is our best plan. Let's ask all the different actors if they're okay with it. And when you think about it, there's a lot of different actors that you need to consult. There's the NHL players union, there's the different ownership groups, like all the different franchise owners, and then they need to consult their majority and minority stakeholders. Um, there's the different regulatory bodies, like provincial and state health agencies. There's different municipalities that'll have, because there'll be major urban centers, they'll have their own municipal considerations. So there's a lot of people for them to consult. And at any point in time, individual actors can change their position, change their stance, and that can really throw a plan out of whack uh, like just uh, next week, actually, there was a San Jose game that has been postponed. And that's the reality of working with all the different independent actors. San Jose is a very, very progressive place when it comes to COVID prevention. And it's going to cost them an economic opportunity with the NHL being active and playing there. And it's going to cost them um, kind of political relationship strain with with these different institutions like the NHL and the people who are pressuring them to let life, quote unquote, return back to normal. Right. Yeah, I could see that where in a lot of places you are seeing or you were seeing these spikes and um, anytime there is a drastic enough spike, I guess it could uh, throw a wrench into future games and because you have to figure out like, can we actually host the game in this city anymore? Um, or if we had people in the arenas, is that protocol now gone and we can't, can't do that. And yeah, man, that must be terrible for, for the people that have to deal with like the um, organizers have to manage and deal with. 
Yeah. So I, I'm definitely not envious of that person's job. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's kind of the logistical consideration. We talked about financial consideration. We've talked about the logistical consideration and as promised, the political consideration wove itself very neatly into the others because that's the nature of politics. <laughs> uh, I, I, so I saw this one article early on, uh, talking about this new like division setup that they're using and it was kind of touting like different rivalries that are back. Uh, and I thought that was like an interesting marketing move where they really have to drive kind of the the setup and say like, oh, so you won't necessarily see these two teams play, but like these other two teams who don't normally get to play against each other and like maybe used to be a rivalry back however many years ago, like now it's back, like get excited. Um, yeah, and I, I think to go beyond that, because you're right, like this changes, like if if they do go into the, bubbles or the or the regions kind of style of play um, where you only play within your region or you only play within your bubble um, if they do approach that you're right it's going to change how they market the sport um, but I think it goes beyond that it's going to change how different superstars emerge from the sport um, because if you're playing in a smaller little bubble maybe you're maybe you just have the right talent on the right line playing the right style of hockey and there isn't anyone to expose your your strategic weakness because the five teams that you play, like you're dominant over them. And uh, I, I think that, that it does change kind of how strategy evolves throughout the year and how teams respond to one another with their strategy. Um, and, and, I, and I also think it changes the way players will emerge and develop, right? So that's kind of a cool consideration too. For sure. Huh. No, that is a, that's definitely like an interesting take on that. Cause, cause like, here's the thing is that you can see how good Sidney Crosby is and that's why his, his bonafide stardom emerges because as a very young player, he was pretty much playing against almost every NHL team within the first two, three years, he probably had played every NHL team. So he'd gone up against the best stars in the league in his first two, three years and come away with a couple, a couple Stanley cup appearances. You know, like I, I think by the end of his third year, he had a Stanley Cup. If I'm okay. not mistaken, so do you maybe, think? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe it took a little longer. Um, but but I mean, he was stellar right out of the gate. Yeah. You know. So do you think? I guess the outcome of this is if you're playing fewer teams, you're in, you're going to end up having maybe weaker superstars, or is it just it's a different style? It's a different um, way that people get found and. Because I think in like a political lens, the best way to describe it is a unipolar versus a multipolar stardom. So when you've got all of the teams playing their superstars against one one another because you play, you know, 15 different teams a year, let's say, um, or probably more than that, probably more like 20 different teams a year. But that's over three different years, you know, that covers the 30 year, the 30 league team easily, you know. So you you do get to play against all the different best teams and you become a very marketable star to Reebok if you perform well league-wide and, and break out as a as a league-wide star like that makes you very very lucrative to sponsorship considerations you're Sidney Crosby you're league-wide known whereas I think for some players who are trying to break out as emerging stars if you're in this more regional system you might have you might it, it'll be easier to feel like a bigger fish in a small pond but at the end of the day, the big opportunities, I think, are a little bit harder 
Because how do you establish yourself as the league-wide and preeminent defenseman if you don't play a, an 80 game or an 82 game season against teams from every division and prove yourself as the best of the best, you know? Right. Yeah. Like if, uh, say you get this superstar coming out of the West coast bubble, who is like great offense, great forward and yeah, a defender that's coming out of this Northern bubble. Well, they never get to see each other. So you can't really say, well, this defender is better than that, that attacker, I guess. Right. Yeah, in like one season, maybe it doesn't matter a ton, but over two or three years, I think that these types of effects compound and start to become noticeable in the sport. And we already have one season that was kind of shortened and paused and delayed and resumed, and it wasn't a proper season. And now we're into two seasons that aren't quite proper. And by the time we return, I think it'll be kind of like that first breath of like, okay, everybody's going to be playing the best against the best league wide. Like we're going to see some cool matchups. Whereas, you know, bef- like, because like we're very lucky that Sidney Crosby and Alexander Ovechkin have been in the same division for most of their careers. So we've gotten to see the best of the best go head to head. But if they were in totally opposite divisions, you could go like two years without having them play against each other. And it's not like they're playing against other teams that can they because like players talk like one player is going to say to another player like, oh, buddy, like you're going to play this team on Saturday, like prepare to get lit. They've got some players, whereas in this weird bubble system, you wouldn't have that. It'd be like, hey, buddy, you're going to play this team next year and they're going to be fucking awesome. Let me tell you (laughs) right now, though, they're whooping me. (laughs) Yeah. So I I don't know, like I guess the, the whole concept is there's a huge emphasis on having a regular season, but I think it goes without saying that they want to have a playoff, but, uh, but I don't know. I'm just a skeptic that the playoff could be interrupted because of pandemic considerations or I don't know, like the season will just be different because of, of the bubble structure for sure. But I don't know. I don't, I don't really think anyone cares. They just want hockey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess as long as it's on, then people will be happy in their homes and hopefully yeah, hopefully they have the playoffs. I know they're trying to get that done before um, before the Olympics hit because uh, obviously that's like a while from now, but with all the delays that could happen, there's potential that things will take a lot longer. But if they get through the playoffs this year, then I guess hopefully come September they, or maybe October when things are hypothetically back to normal, um, then they'll be able to actually do a regular season the way that they were kind of hoping to before totally but but in in the meantime i mean like just to again kind of in another way kind of better better communicate what i was trying to say with the the sponsorship consideration like if you're reebok and you're going to represent like this emerging player that maybe not everyone has heard of like sure everyone's heard of Sidney crosby but has everyone heard of you know in and then insert you know some prospects right (laughs) yeah you could say anyone and i would not know probably Uh, yeah exactly you know but uh but 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 essentially like you need to have that international scope because if you're only playing the regional games like if i'm a colorado avalanche fan and like you know the florida panthers have this like really cool prospect if it's this regional system like i literally might not see this prospect other than on like the highlight reels and in news articles until playoffs like I'm only going to watch my Colorado Avalanche and they will never play that. They will never play the Florida Panthers. And it's like, oh, 
well, like if you're that player and if you're that player's agent and you're trying to represent to Reebok, how my player's awesome, my player's recognized, my player will help you sell hockey sticks. It's kind of hard to say that when nobody from any of the opposing teams on like the other half of the country will even recognize your player's name because they never played against your player. Right. Yeah. It might be, if that makes sense. Oh, totally. Okay, cool. I'm glad. So yeah, like it just might be something where the playoffs are going to be that kind of defining moment, but it won't necessarily be like a, won't be the same one-to-one comparison from like other playoffs and other seasons. It'll just be like, Oh, at least here's kind of like a, a small metric, a small test. That says yeah. this guy might be okay. I, I guess to tie it into like a quick little marketing uh, prediction for for the sake of posterity, I think the way they're going to market it during the regular season, out of necessity, is going to be way more on those historic regional uh, rival rivalries, and then in the playoffs, they're going to really, really hammer home the inter-regional considerations. And I, I think that's going to be how they play it to try to compensate for the fact that they had to limit themselves to these little bubbles. But I don't know. Time will tell. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. But but yeah, that's kind of all I got on the NHL, man, because uh, it, it's a business that's kind of just always been a bit of an interest of mine. But at the end of the day, like this pandemic has affected it a lot differently than most other organizations that I've been tracking out of interest simply because of like, the scope, the nature of it, like it's, it's been different. So I'm glad we got to talk about it. Me too. Um, yeah. Thanks for enlightening me on, on the industry a bit more and kind of how this whole thing shakes out. Oh man. I honestly, half the ideas I have about these, these kind of things, I like never even like try to communicate them outside my head until I talk to you about them. And then I'm like, oh man, like sometimes it's really easy. And I'm like, oh, I'm a genius. And other times it's like really hard. And I'm like, am I just dumb or am I just not able to like, do I not have the words? Like, so often just talking it out with you probably prepares me better for later in life when I need to maybe share these opinions and views with other people that aren't so patient and understanding with me. <laughs> I, well, I can't wait for, for the day where, yeah, someone is like your moment of triumph or whatever, where like someone just comes up to you. It's like, I need to know some details on like the NHL. Um, right now and how they're going to deal with COVID-19 and you're like, I've prepared for this my whole life. (laughs) Man, I, okay. Here's the thing. When they, when they launched that Everest movie about with Jake Gyllenhaal and Josh Brolin about like the 1996 Everest disaster, I was personally insulted. They did not, they did not consult me. (laughs) I ordered like every book I could off of like every book website possible other than Amazon (laughs) <laughs> just to yeah, just were... to learn just to learn about that 96 Everest disaster before the I movie read, right <laughs> way way before the movie like 6 years before the movie i i read john Krakauer's book i i uh i read um uh anatoly bukreev's book um like i i read all david brashear's books i read all the different accounts from like the cuz everyone who was up there wrote a book so i was like oh okay i read all the different accounts and then they made this goddamn movie without consulting me. And it's like, man, why did I become an expert on all these different things if you're going to make a movie and not consult me? Jeez Louise. Oh, man. So one day, so, no, you'll be you'll be the expert that they're looking to one day. Don't worry. The real plan is to just take Gary Bettman's job. Just plain <laughs> and simple. I hate the guy. 
he sucks i, I i'm gonna take his job <laughs> <laughs> uh, well i look forward to seeing yeah commissioner sean head of the nhl yeah. Anyways, I better get going to bed, but uh, you got me all fired up. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, all right. Have, you a, have good a good one. one. Yeah. Bye. Cheers.